Section five of A Book of Scoundrels by Charles Wibley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Moll Cutpurse and Jonathan Wild. Part three. A parallel. Moll Cutpurse and Jonathan Wild. They plied the same trade, each with incomparable success. By her, as by him, the art of the fence was carried to its ultimate perfection. In their hands the high policy of theft wanted nor dignity nor assurance. Neither harboured a single scheme which was not straightway translated into action, and they were masters at once of Newgate and the highway. As none might rob without the encouragement of his emperor, so none was hanged at Tyburn, while intrigue or bribery might avail to drag a half-doomed neck from the halter. And not even Moll herself was more bitterly tyrannical in the control of a reckless gang than the thin-jawed, hatchet-faced Jonathan Wilde. They were statesmen rather than warriors, happy if they might direct the enterprise of others, and determined to punish the lightest disobedience by death. The mind of each was readier than his right arm, and neither would risk an easy advantage by a misunderstood or unwonted sleight of hand. But when you leave the exercise of their craft to contemplate their character with a larger eye, it is the woman who at every point has the advantage. Not only was she the peerless inventor of a new cunning, she was at home and abroad the better fellow. The suppression of sex was in itself an unparalleled triumph, and the most envious detractor could not but marvel at the domination of her womanhood. Moreover, she shone in a gayer, more splendid epoch. The worthy contemporary of Shakespeare, she had small difficulty in performing feats of prowess and resource which daunted the intrepid ruffians of the eighteenth century. Her period, in brief, gave her an eternal superiority and it were as hopeless for Otway to surpass the master whom he disgraced, as for Wilde to o'ershadow the brilliant example of Moll Cutpurse. Tyrants both, they exercised their sovereignty in accordance with their varying temperament. Hers was a fine, fat, full Staffian humour, which, while it inspired Middleton, might have suggested to Shakespeare an equal companion of the drunken knight. His was but a narrow, cynic wit, not edged like the knife which well-nigh cut his throat, but blunt and scratching, like a worn-toothed saw. She laughed with a laugh that echoed from Ludgate to Charing Cross, and her voice drowned all the city. He grinned rarely, and with malice. He piped in a shrill voice, and acid as the tricks of his mischievous imagination. She knew no cruelty beyond the necessities of her life, and none regretted more than she the inevitable death of a traitor. He lusted after destruction with a fiendish temper, which was a grim anticipation of Dessard. He would even smile as he saw the noose tighten round the necks of the poor innocents he had beguiled to Tyburn. It was his boast that he contrived robberies for the mere glory of dragging his silly victims to the gallows, but Moll, though she stood halfway between the robber and his prey, would have sacrificed a hundred well-earned commissions rather than see her friends and comrades strangled. Her temperament compelled her to the loyal support of her own order, and she would have shrunk in horror from her rival, who, for all his assumed friendship with the thief, 
was a staunch and subtle ally of justice. Before all things she had the genius of success. Her public offences were trivial and condoned. She died in her bed, full of years and honours, beloved by the light-fingered gentry, reverenced by all judges on the bench. He, for all the sacrifices he made to a squint-eyed law, died execrated alike by populace and police. Already Blueskin had done his worst with a penknife. Already Jack Shepherd and his comrades had warned Drury Lane against the infamous thief-catcher. And so anxious, on the other hand, was the law to be quit of their too zealous servant, that an act of Parliament was passed, with the sole object of placing Jonathan's head within the noose. His method, meagre though masterly, lulled him too soon to an impotent security. She, with her larger view of life, her plumper sense of style, was content with nothing less than an ultimate sovereignty, and manifestly did she prove her superiority. Though born for the wimple, she was more of a man than the breeched and stocking Jonathan, whose only deed of valiance was to hang, terror-like, by his teeth to an evasive enemy. While he cheated at cards and cogged the dice, she trained dogs and never missed a bear-baiting. He shrank like the coward that he was from the exercise of manly sports. She cared not what were the weapons, quarterstaff or broadsword, so long as she vanquished her opponent. She scoured the town in search of insult. He did but exert his cunning when a quarrel was put upon him. Who then shall deny her manhood? Who shall whisper that his style was the braver, or the better suited to his sex? As became a hero, she kept the best of loose company. Her parlour was ever packed with the friends of loyalty and adventure. Are not Hind and Mulsack worth a thousand blueskins? Moreover, plunder and wealth were not the only objects of her pursuit. She was not merely a fence, but a patriot, and she would have accounted a thousand pounds well lost if she did but compass the discomfiture of a Parliament man. Indeed, if Jonathan the thief-catcher limped painfully after his magnificent example, Jonathan the man and the sportsman confessed a pitiful inferiority to the valiant Mole. Thus she avenged her sex, by distancing the most illustrious of her rivals. And if he pleads for his credit a taste for theology, hers is the chuckle of contemptuous superiority. She died a patriot, bequeathing a fountain of wine to the champions of an exiled king. He died a casuist, setting crabbed problems to the ordinary. Here again the advantage is evident. Loyalty is the virtue of men. A sudden attachment to religion is the last resource of the second-rate citizen and of the trapped criminal. End of section 5